Hello, hello. Welcome to the Beehive, your go-to podcast for all things women's intimate health. I'm your host, Hannah, here to discuss the many questions you've always had about your body but never wanted to ask. Whether it relates to sex, chronic pain, trauma, relationships, healing, hormones, spirituality, and so much more, we are normalizing taboos, breaking down the complexities of the female body, and providing you with the information you need to take your health into your own hands. Hello everyone, happy, happy new year. I hope you all are doing well and staying healthy and safe in this crazy time. Um, It is definitely stressful. There's definitely a lot going on. But with that said, I hope everyone is having a good start to the new year. And if you're not having a good start to the new year, that's okay as well. It can get better from here but I am glad to be back. I'm glad to be here. So I thought I would take a quick moment to just share some of the things I've been reflecting on from the past year and for the new year and some of the intentions I have, some thoughts surrounding, you know, what the new year means to me. So I'll share some of my thoughts. I hope this is inspiring or helpful for anyone listening. Um, And I posted some of this to Instagram as well, but I figured I would share it here. So a new year means new beginnings. It's a time to let go of fear, guilt, shame, and insecurities that are holding you back. It's a time to be present and intentional in each and every moment. It's a time to so deeply appreciate the people in your life that sometimes you might take for granted. The family and friends that are closest to us are such a protective factor in our lives and that is something that we should really appreciate and admire and acknowledge in each and every moment. What I've personally learned the most this past year and is such an important lesson for me and I think for so many people is that when you are constantly trying to quote unquote fix or change things, you are just becoming more disconnected from the present moment and more disconnected from the joy, the happiness, and the love that is in your life. When you're thinking about the things that you have to change, you're not focusing on the good that's right in front of you. So my intention for this year is really to not try to change or fix every little thing in my life that does not seem to be perfect or that does not seem to be going well but rather to see the beauty in all of it in the good the bad in the confusing moments in the hard moments and to just fully surrender to being present and to finding learning lessons and beautiful moments in everything because i promise you it's all there and if i could share one piece of advice it would be what this is what i've done and it has really given me so much clarity just to take a few minutes to meditate on the future you want for yourself this year and write down the thoughts and feelings that come up for you, what is standing in your way, how can you achieve the year that you are hoping to have, what would it take for you to fully surrender to the present moment. Those are just some thoughts and some prompts and questions that I have written about and thought about and meditated on and I know it sounds cliche, I know everyone says to meditate and do this and that and journal, but it really works. Like it really gives you so much clarity on life and on, you know, your purpose um, and how you want to show up each and every day. And I will not say that I sit here and meditate and journal every day, but when I do, I notice such a difference. And yeah, those are my thoughts. And a few other quick things that I want to share for those who haven't tuned into the past few episodes i have decided um which i shared in the previous episodes i have decided that with school since i am currently in school getting a master's in social work i will be doing one episode a month that's what is manageable for my schedule right now and i want to be able to still provide all of you with content and information and these episodes so it's definitely a priority of mine to keep up with this podcast but I have found that one episode a month and just making that episode extra special and informative is 
what is going to work best for now. So I hope that that works with all of you guys. But this episode is super exciting. I interviewed Dr. Peter Castillo, who I've had on a previous episode. He's an amazing urogynecologist based in California. And we talk all about different treatments for sexual dysfunction issues, whether you have sexual dysfunction issues from hormonal reasons, such as the birth control pill, Um, menopause, cancer treatments, painful sex, vaginal dryness, bladder issues that are hormonally related and different innovative treatments that they use such as laser therapies, PRP, so many different things. So he kind of goes through all of the issues and the treatments that they use. And and the reason this, this episode was so interesting is because he talks about so many innovative and kind of cutting edge treatments that I haven't really discussed with that many practitioners on this podcast before. So I'm really excited for you all to hear this. This is a little longer of an intro than normal, but I have a few things that I want to just share and and say and tell all of you. Um, So yeah, well, first, I'm excited for you to hear this episode. I hope that you all enjoy it. Second, I wanted to share a discount code for a product that I have been loving and For those who have been listeners for a while, you know I'm obsessed with good clean love products and I used to share my experience and my love for these products in episodes like years, at least two years ago. Um, But I was just thinking today that I still use these products all the time. I use the body wash every day. I use their wipes. I I use all their products, Um, their lube. I'm still obsessed with them like over two plus three years later so I was just thinking for anyone who might be new to the podcast I wanted to share good clean loves products again with you so good clean love is a feminine hygiene product line they have been revolutionizing the sexual health industry and are genuinely creating products that help enhance sexual pleasure and improve reproductive health and function their products are all organic and they are packaged with green plastics made from recyclable sugarcane so they are also sustainable As I said, I use their Balance Moisturizing Wash every time I shower, and it helps to cleanse, refresh, and eliminate odors, maintain optimal vaginal pH levels without disrupting the natural pH of your vagina and vulva, which a lot of body washes do. Um, So since sexual health has been a priority of mine and, and has played a large role in my life, I've been so mindful of what I wash my body with. And this is the only body wash I've used for at least three years. And I have really felt great ever since. Like I haven't gotten a yeast infection or um, bacterial vaginosis, hardly anything. So this body wash is really my number one body wash that I use. And I am also obsessed with their Rebalance Feminine Wipes, which are also pH balanced and made with premium aloe and soothing botanical extracts. I always use them post-sex, like religiously, hardly ever miss miss a time. I use one or two of them post-sex. And I don't know, these two products have really been my saving grace. And so, as I said, all of their products are free of artificial fragrances, harsh soaps, petrochemicals, parabens, and they are all gynecologist recommended. So I truly cannot recommend these products enough. Genuinely, this is not even an ad. Um, I do receive, just to be completely transparent, I do receive a referral fee. So it's like an affiliate fee. So basically if you place an order and use my code, then I get a really small fee percentage from the order that you place. So it does help uh, with supporting the beehive if you want to order their products and use my code but i only talk about products that i genuinely love and that i genuinely use which is why you don't hear many ads on this podcast so yeah if you want to try out their products you can receive 10 percent off your first order by going to goodcleanlove.com and using the code hannah10 at checkout that's spelled h-a-n-n-a-h-10 so just enter that promo code at checkout and that's on www.goodcleanlove.com again the code is hannah10 at checkout and i will also put the discount code and the website url in the show notes as well so one other favor that i have to ask everyone actually two favors um the first one is if you could go to well i'll first say if you are enjoying the beehive if it if it is giving you any sense of 
comfort and insight into questions or in, or issues that you're having or experiencing. If the podcast is helping you in any way at all, if you're finding it useful in your life, I would so greatly appreciate if you could go to the iTunes store, the iTunes podcast app actually, and leave a rating and review for the VHive. It is so helpful in optimizing like the SEO for the podcast. So basically the more ratings and reviews a podcast have, then the more visible this podcast will become for other people who are searching different topics that we discuss in the podcast store. So if you could leave a rating and review, I would be so appreciative of that. And um, also, if you want to give us a follow on Instagram at the VHive, that would be also so helpful. And I also, I haven't been sharing a lot on there recently, but this year I'm going to start sharing more. I used to share and post all the time on the VHive Instagram, and I haven't as much recently, but I definitely, definitely want to start posting and sharing more. And lastly, if you have any suggestions of guests that you would like me to have on the VHive this year, send me an email. You can email me at Hannah, H-A-N-N-A-H, at thevhive.com. And just send me an email with any suggest guest suggestions that you have. I always want to hear from this community as to, you know, practitioners that have been helpful for you, um, patient stories, therapists, like really anything that you've been enjoying and that you've found some benefit from if you think that it would make an interesting episode for the podcast an interesting guest definitely let me know so okay i think that's it i won't i won't take up any more of your precious time so without further ado let's get right into the episode Today I'm here with Dr. Peter Castillo. He is a board-certified urogynecologist in Los Gatos, California, and he has actually been on the podcast before, a few months ago. So I am very excited to have you back today. Thank you, Hannah. Yeah, thank you, thank you. So last time we talked a lot about bladder urgency and different treatments that you utilize for different bladder conditions, but you do a lot more than that. So I think we have a lot more to talk about today. So thanks again for being here. Thank you for having me, Hannah. This is uh, uh, last was great. We started our conversation last time about the the overall uh, intimate concerns that patients have and how intimately they're connected. Yeah. Um, and uh, and then we sort of chose a path down the urinary trail, mm-hmm. which was uh, which was uh, a lot of fun because there's a lot of mystery about urinary tract symptoms that um, that. You know, patients suffer in, and oftentimes are misdiagnosed or underdiagnosed. Um, our practice really focuses, as I mentioned, on intimate concerns, and uh, intimacy problems are a big component of that. And many of our patients that, that come to see us that range anywhere from from 25 to to 75 um, have difficulties with intimacy, usually because of a functional nature. Something has changed. Uh, in their uh, anatomy, their functionality that prevents them from being able to engage in intercourse or, or, or even um, have enough desire to desire uh, intimacy. Yeah. So, um, so as we've evolved along with our patients, you know, we've learned so much from our patients. A lot of the conditions that we treat, um, such as uh, recurrent UTIs or postcoital UTIs every time they have intercourse. It's a big detra- distractor or detractor for wanting to engage mm-hmm. to then uh, life changes um, from childbirth to hormonal changes in menopause lead to difficulty with engaging either dryness, painful intercourse, loss of sensitivity and laxity. Um, and these are these are common, very common symptoms that women all experience in many oftentimes just assume it to be normal and it is normal the aging process is normal and life events are normal but the consequences sometimes are are, are manageable yeah but not not necessarily need to be um, just accepted as as that's the way it's going to be mm-hmm. yeah no I mean I appreciate you saying that and I think it's very important for people to know and to hear that and as we were just briefly talking before we started recording but a lot of times you know women and men get these diagnoses and they don't really have proper solutions to them so as you said you know it's like you might 
get a, a name a diagnosis but you then it's like what do i do about this or you're sent to go buy lube or to go do something that might not really be the best and most helpful answer so in that regard i thought that today would be it would be interesting to focus on different sexual wellness topics and kind of therapies that you utilize for those issues i know that you have these incredible very new and innovative therapies that you use for a variety of conditions and i thought that it would be great to have you kind of explain what those are who who can who would be a good candidate and how they work all of those types of things so i'll let you kind of take the lead on what what these laser therapies and and different procedures that you have are and how they really work sure sure um so there's there are lots of therapies and the and the beautiful thing about the, this current day and age is that medicine is evolving at a at an incredible pace mm-hmm. um, I agree. for decades for decades our our knee-jerk and only response to patients with painful intercourse was lubricant and or abstain mm. and you know and it's it's amazing to this day it still amazes me how many patients will come to see me after years of frustration with their with their primary care doctors or their GYN or the lack of information that's out there that, that there's therapies for this and the stories that are told to them or at least the information that's shared with them from their providers. But, you know, as, as finding alternatives to intercourse, which, um, which that may be fine for some, but, yeah. but it's not fine for everyone. Mm-hmm. And... <clears throat> So, um, just starting before I get into the types of therapies, uh, it's important to, uh, I want to discuss the different causes, yeah. the, the different yeah. causes for say, um, let's starting with, uh, childbirth related changes, uh, cause that would be the younger patient population. Um, somebody who has, um, recent, uh, deliveries has either episiotomies or tears or scarring or things that may have happened as a result of childbirth trauma. Um, the vast majority of those do resolve over time. However, many don't. And when they don't, it's usually because of structural changes. Something has changed within the canal or the pelvic floor that changes either the orientation of the vagina, the aperture of the vagina, um, or uh, the sensitivity or, or pain bundles or trigger points that result from scarring. And when my younger patients come in with that kind of a history where they've always been able to have intercourse without difficulty, but now since delivery, they have not been able to, and it's been, you know, over six months or a year, uh, then we, we look to find where the troubles are. Mm-hmm. Those problems could be due to um, uh, perineal webbing, like where the, the introitus, the opening has been, um, where it was injured and then sewn and left a web as opposed to what a nice, is that? Uh, a web picture, if, yeah. if you can imagine it with your your mind's eye, if you were to take your, your hand, your thumb and your index finger and spread them apart, mm-hmm. right? And you have that web of skin mm-hmm. in between the two. Mm-hmm. See that, that web of skin that forms when you web yeah. and you spread them far apart? Yeah. Well, that, when it's spread apart, it's less elastic. As you can see, you can push on it, but it's it's not easy to, to push on. If you relax it, it's soft and supple. Mm. Well, that, the perineum... Um, should be able to be stretched um, and uh, and allowed to accommodate, but sometimes the skin is too tight and it creates that kind of web at all times. So that web of skin tears or stretches and is extremely painful. Um, and that is something that um, oftentimes has to do with the injury itself or the way that it was repaired, mm-hmm. in which case um, sometimes we have to surgically re- revise that so that it's nice and re- elastic again elastic again and able able to accommodate and this is like Um, inside the vagina or like where does that right at the opening the introitus so picture uh where the where at the opening there's the there's the hymen and and then the hymenal remnant there it's sort of like a bed ruffle that right that goes all the way around the opening Mm -hmm. and at the bottom part of the vagina where between the vagina and the anus at the right at the bottom of the opening that web of skin can be extremely painful so that's the most common thing that happens usually after childbirth. That's interesting. Of course. Uh, mm-hmm. And um, then there's um, trigger points where because of the way things were sewn or because the injury that, it, that, it concurred, that occurred 
when it's during the sewing process, sometimes nerve bundles gets, get bundled up or bunched up. So there's a focal point and a focal point makes it almost impossible to conceive of intercourse because it's so tender to the touch, much less forget doing anything else. Um, those are usually you know, relieved with like trigger point injections with steroids, uh, sometimes with a, with a surgical revision or sometimes with a laser. Um, but the, um, but those are usually because of trauma that happened in that, in that area during the delivery. Mm -hmm. um, um, other things that change due to, not necessarily due to childbirth, but just sticking with the younger patient population first, is um, vestibulodynia or, or um, uh, vulvodynia. Mm -hmm. Those are, so any dynia, anything, uh, is pain in that area. So the vulva or the, or the vestibule. The vestibule is that that very delicate tissue between the labia and the vagina. And it's, um, and it's a different skin, it's a different sensitivity. And that area can be, can be altered from, from either trauma or, believe it or not, from hormonal uh, changes. Mm -hmm. Patients who have been on um, birth control for 15, 20 years, oftentimes have changes in their vulvar skin and their vaginal tissues. Um, because the, the point of birth control, you know, in the in birth control is a sort of a necessary evil, I'll call it, because it's necessary because patients don't want to have random pregnancies, um, uh, or for rat for use of, um, you know, for regulation of their menstrual cycles, which are extremely important and helpful because patients who suffer from those problems really, really need something. But when patients have been on birth control for, say, hormone regulation or cycle regulation since the time they were 12 or 13, and they've been that way on birth control until they're in their 30s, I oftentimes see those patients with other problems. And those problems stem from the cessation of ovulation and hormonal impact on their body. S mm. Several things from vitamin B6 deficiency to leading to depression and moods to um, local uh, changes like um, like vaginal dryness, painful intercourse, and um, vulvar pain and dystrophies. So these um, uh, these are secondary effects of long-term use of birth control in the traditional sense, like the oral birth control. Yeah. Do you see that more um, with oral birth control over IUDs? Just randomly oh, yeah. curious. Yes. Yeah. Yes. No, that's actually a very, a very important distinction. IUDs don't mess with your, your hormonal cycle. Right. They don't stop ovulation. They don't influence your systemic hormone levels. Um, they have a pure local effect in the vagina. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, in the uterus. Mm -hmm. um, in some patients, and I don't have a hard number for this because I've not been able to get a hard number from anybody on this, but for, very, for a small segment of the population on hormonal IUDs, they do have vaginal symptoms right. that cause recurrent BV, vaginal dryness, and very much like, like menopausal-like symptoms because of the effect of progesterone locally in the, in the vagina. Mm. But it's not, it's not a, I see a lot, but it's not a common occurrence. So I still would recommend Mirena IUD, like, or not to use a brand, but a progesterone-releasing mm. um, IUD over an oral contraceptive any day. Yeah. Um, um, and then, you know, and that's a great segue into what happens in the patient who's breastfeeding or who just goes to a clinic for birth control, like say um, that just needs a quick birth control, they can't afford pills or they don't want to be on pills. So they give them the, um, major the um, Depo um, Provera shots, which is a um, progesterone only contraception shot that you do every three months. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you, you, may, you may have heard of that. Yeah. So, that contraceptive shot is great because it's easy if you're breastfeeding because it's not going to transfer into the baby. Or it's easy because it's ease of use. You go there and you're done for three months. The problem with it, um, we used to have a guideline that would state you shouldn't be on this for more than three years. And the three-year mark was because of the progesterone-only delivery constantly does lead to osteoporotic changes and bone changes, much like somebody who's menopausal. Wow. And when you see somebody that's in their 30s with these changes, it's devastating because how can you rebuild all that now that you're 30 years old? Um, and I see patients to this day that for some reason slip through the cracks and have been on them for 15 years. And they keep doing that. And now they have intractable pain, dryness, um, inability to have intercourse, 
um, and uh, loss of libido, loss of um, uh, oh, and loss of bone, which uh, is concerning. Wait, so let me that, ask you a quick question. If yeah. if the IUD and the the shot, the depot Provera shot, are both progesterone only, why is the shot much more harmful? The shot is systemic. So you oh. have systemic levels oh, I understand. of progesterone. That makes sense. Where you're right. Just like the Nexplanon. Nexplanon is mm-hmm. a great therapeutic um, uh, contraception is placed under the arm as progesterone only. Right. But doing that for 10 to 15 years would be, uh, one, no, not many patients would put up with that for that long. Yeah. <laughs> uh, a shot is easy to be neglectful with. And you just keep doing it because it's easy. That makes sense. So okay. that's the that's the main reason. Um, uh, so then um, that leads us to um, childbirth-related changes. So now somebody who has now made it through um, to a point where they've had children and they've had delivery changes like um, uh, laxity. Laxity is a common, common concern. And um, it's often dismissed by their gynecologists uh, simply because, well, of course, there's going to be some changes. You just delivered a large seven to nine pound child. Um, now, the, the, the truth is most things go back to normal. Providing the yeah. delivery was 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 um, uh, not significantly traumatic, it can, most things will go back. Um, but some patients, and in fact, seems like many patients all would, would agree that there has been some change, although it may not be that major or not significant enough to even to think about. Um, but there's been some changes. But then there's those patients who do notice a difference. And that uh, sensitivity, um, sense of resistance or friction is not the same because their, their dimensions are different. And the, when the dimensions are different, oftentimes it's because of muscular or connective tissue changes, meaning muscle stretch or, or the supportive um, connective tissue that compartmentalizes the different areas in the vagina are stretched or torn or injured. And they could either lead to simple symptoms, no, I shouldn't say simple, but um, mild symptoms like sense of laxity or more severe symptoms like prolapse where things are falling. Mm-hmm. So those are things that are not quite easily to discern in the beginning. Somebody who's just had their first child, they feel like things haven't been back together and now they're still, they're still a year plus out and things haven't really quite gotten back to normal. And from that perspective, when you're out, everything will look as like normal. Yeah. Um, pro- however, prolapse is a progressive problem that's sort of like a very slow moving train where the injured tissues, the connective tissue, the ligamentous supports that hold the uterus in place, the bladder and the rectum and all those in place, over time they stretch and they start to fall further and further and further. And it's sort of like a a loose um, description of what prolapse, the progression of prolapse, it's about one stage per year. So most patients are going to be a stage zero um, for most of their lives. Some may even reach a stage one without even having children just because of life forces, strenuous work, uh, marathoners, um, obesity, chronic coughing, straining, that kind of thing. But um, to get from a stage one to a stage two and somebody who had a true injury can be 10 years, mm-hmm. which means no one's as symptomatic about it other than maybe feeling that things don't feel the same and gynecologists or their doctors may still be dismissive of it because there's nothing to repair. But as it progresses and after 20 years or 30 years, now you're at a stage two or to stage three um, or worse. And stage two, stage three, stage four, what that means is the degree of fall that it is to the opening. So how far relative the opening it is. So in my office, because I'm a urogynecologist, the vast majority of patients I see have either childbirth-related changes or prolapse. Mm-hmm. And so I see a wide range of these patients that have either the uterus completely out or the bladder down to the opening or the rectum bulging out. And of course, from their eye, it just seems all the same. Something is falling and it's not good. Um, so prolapse can affect 40% of women um, after wow. having children. Yeah, that's crazy. Yes, it are. It is an enormous number, um, but fortunately, only about 11% of those actually trend, move on to having surgery. It all depends on the symptomatology that, that goes along with it. Some patients have just the right amount of prolapse that it doesn't impact their quality of life in any way. And any degree of prolapse, if it's not impacting them and it's not harming them, 
isn't an emergency. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but it's very hard to convey that to a patient when they know that th- something's not the same and something is protruding from the vagina. Yeah. Um, so that's part of you know my my job is to is to help the patient understand the process, not just allow fear to take over. And you know, with lot, with so little information out there, it's uh, it's very easy for patients to get um, to get very distraught over over these things. Yeah. Um, now, those when it comes to um, muscular changes, um, where the dimensions are larger, or they're or they have prolapse, and it's impacting sexual function to a point that it's important enough for them to come see, then we have to talk about options. And options always include conservative therapies and pelvic floor um, physical therapy, uh, uh, pelvic strengthening exercises. But I always say that there's a point where exercise and therapy can only do so much. Mm-hmm. Meaning you can't exercise a broken arm back no. to health. You have to fix the arm first. Yeah, that makes sense. So in those, so in those cases, we talk about surgical options that can range anywhere from um, uh, straightforward vaginoplasty, which is geared towards restoring sexual function um, or for prolapse repairs to put things back where they belong in a supported way and restoring support or a combination of restoring their prolapse and restoring their normal axis and dimensions so that they can resume intercourse like they used to. Now, the downst- uh, downstream from there are hormonal changes. So the menopausal process is um, has been really poorly described by us physicians because we have five minutes to talk to a patient about anything because of insurance demands and things like that. We have to go in and out of patients' off their rooms. So if it's not brought up, we don't talk about it. And if you ask us anything that's, that is that we don't have a great answer for, we dismiss it. And mm-hmm. that's the unfortunate truth of, of um, how medicine has changed the way we practice. That's but so, many of us yeah. physicians... No, it's so ahead, true. No, no, I was just going to say it's so true. Like, it really makes sense when you say that as to why so many physicians just shrug a lot of things off they don't have the answer they either they either don't have the answer or they don't have the time um, or they don't have the time to learn the answer and that's sort of the pickle we all get into Um, but that that said many physicians are frustrated with that and the fact that they may want to help people but they don't have the the ability to sit there and talk or, or have a way of helping them or giving them enough time to bring up the question you know, we used to call it the um, the door handle question, where you finish your consultation, you've got a plan, scheduled everything, and you're about to walk out the door, and the and the patients, their inner conscience finally allows them to stop them before they leave because they had that one last question. Mm-hmm. So we always called it the door handle question. That mm-hmm. that meant we had to go back and sit down and then listen. <laughs> but of course, that's always a fear when doctors have twenty or thirty patients in their office because now they're going to be behind. Um, but the door handle question is the most important question. That's so, I love that. Because yeah. it's, it's the one that the patient has been holding on to, has been wanting an answer for, in need of an answer for, and has not been able to find an answer. And they're embarrassed because they don't, they think that they're the only ones. You know, they feel that nobody else could be going through this. Why, can, why haven't I heard about this? None of my friends or family have ever mentioned that they're having difficulties with intercourse and, or that things just don't look the same. Mm-hmm. And, and they finally get the courage to just say it before they leave the room. And if they, if they got their attention, the doctor comes back and then they don't have an answer for them. Yeah. Say, well, that's normal. You had children or that's normal. You're aging or that's normal. You know, your mother, your grandmother, they, they all had it too. You know, these are normal processes, but it's it's not normal. It's just common. Right. right? right. Aging yeah. is a normal process. How we handle aging and how we affect those changes is how we live. Is how we determine the rest of our lives. Yeah. So with our patients, um, I give them all plenty of time for that door handle question, and and it's never a door handle question because I will <laughs> sit there to the very end and I will ask them, "Is there anything else that you want to talk about?" Yeah. And and it's amazing that when you open the door patients have so much to ask and they have so many things and sometimes it's it's like there's this weight lifted on of them yeah some of them cry because they've never been heard before some of them because they've never had to talk about it when they finally are able to verbalize it their emotions take over yeah so it's um for me it's probably the most valuable time is that that last few minutes before the, the appointment's over 
that a patient has those concerns that have been sitting in the back of their mind that they finally come out. Yeah, but I also um, want to quickly say that I feel like a lot of it also has to do with the fact that, and you you correct me if I'm wrong, but when these patients come to you, they've probably already seen so many doctors that haven't had answers. So I feel like there's so much relief in coming to a doctor like you that actually does have a lot of answers and that actually does understand this so well that the relief that that person feels is just like major. It, it is. I think that is a big part of it. A lot of the patients that I see have already been through the gamut of providers for years. Yeah. Uh, and um, and they do feel relief when I, they're felt hurt, mm-hmm. even if it's something that um, I may not have a direct answer for because it's something that's different than what yeah. uh, than than what I normally manage. The fact that I was able to acknowledge what it is and be able to con- connect them with somebody that can help them. Um, uh, is a is a huge relief. Yeah, yeah. Um, for so many, um, it's interesting that when I uh, just being in the community for a while, we get more and we get plenty of patients that are referred to us. Fortunately, from physical therapists and their gynecologists because they don't have an answer for them, but they know that I may. Mm-hmm. But then I have patients who find us because they just moved to the area and they're just looking for somebody um, that can uh, help them, and they're not aware of how deep this can go, and they start. We, we start all of our patients with this questionnaire that's a, it's one page, but it's a very in-depth questionnaire and it's all of the questions that nobody ever asks. Yeah. It's the questions that ask about urinary symptoms, bowel symptoms, um, uh, anatomic changes, uh, concerns, um, sexual function concerns, hormonal changes or, or symptoms. And they go through these, these questions and they always, <laughs> and it's really fun to watch because they say, oh my God, nobody's ever asked me these questions. <laughs> and yeah. and it opens the door. It opens the door because now that it just goes to show that there's nothing that we can't talk about in that room. Mm-hmm. And it's really cool. That's um, amazing. Um, so now the, the, the next phase are... Um, local skin changes. So the vagina is its own environment. Uh, much like the Everglades is in Florida, it's a whole a different ecosystem than the rest of the states. Creates its own weather system and all that. I know it's a weird analogy, but um, <laughs> the vagina is a, it's its own en- uh, environment in, uh, in the body. It's an acidic environment. The pH is very low in the fours, uh, four to five. And um, uh, and the bacteria and the microbes that can live in the vagina are adapted to that environment. And mm-hmm. that's what protects the vagina and the bladder and the urethra from, from uh, offending agents. And um, when there's changes to that environment, things change in the vagina. So, for example, um, uh, patients who take antibiotics for recurrent UTIs, and each time they get a certain antibiotic, they get a yeast infection. Mm-hmm. And why is that? They get a yeast infection because they wiped out the bacteria that live there. And now the only thing that can grow is, is the yeast. So the yeast take over. So it's all about population dynamics. It's controlling. It's making keeping that balance in check. Well, the same thing happens as patients start to progress towards menopause because of declining estrogen levels. The lactobacillus that lives in the vagina can't survive. And that's what drives the pH down. Lactobacillus creates lactic acid is a byproduct and the ph goes down which keeps everybody happy but when you wipe them out or they can't survive because of loss of estrogen then um, the environment changes and the ph slowly creeps up to a ph that's above uh that's more basic things mm-hmm. you know that's above five and as we get closer to more basic that basic environment is the same environment that in, the, in your gi system so 80% of, of, of UTIs come from uh, bacteria that live in your GI system. Mm-hmm. And they all live in a basic environment. And I always wondered, why is it that, the, if, that if E. coli, for example, is the number one, is the majority of it, but if E. coli is, lives in, in the intestine and the anus is only centimeters away from the vagina, why don't women have UTIs more frequently? Right. And it's because that, that, I call it a force field, is that environment in the vagina that doesn't allow them to survive. Mm-hmm. They can't live there. So they stay in their neighborhood and they don't migrate until intercourse. And some patients have recurrent UTIs because of um, post-coital UTIs, just right. the way 
that it happens for them that bacteria get exposed to the urethra and little micro traumas that happen during sex. Now the bacteria has a is it has an access and able and ability to get in. So that's what causes postcoital UTIs is because now they're being introduced just because of the proximity. Mm-hmm. But as women start to get into the menopause years, that becomes much more common, much more frequent, simply because um, the pH is now accepting of that bacteria and now they can colonize and live there and hang out until there's a moment. Um, so what do we do for that? When it comes to environmental changes in the vagina that lead to recurrent UTIs to decreasing estrogen um, or um, or decreasing sensitivity in the vagina or worse, painful intercourse. It's because the environment of the vagina has changed. The vaginal skin, which is meant to be thick and robust and tolerant of friction, now becomes thin and intolerant and inflexible, which means it doesn't stretch. So that's a condition called GSM, genital urinary syndrome of menopause. Mm-hmm. It's a long name for what we used to call the changes due to atrophy or changes from estrogen loss. But it's got this bigger name because it, now it's a collection of symptoms from UTIs, burning with urination, vaginal itching and burning, painful intercourse, uh, vaginal dryness. Um, and those are that's a collection of symptoms that fall under GSM. And now we have therapies for it because we yeah. used to just give estrogen back. So yeah. for patients with GSM symptoms like dryness, painful intercourse, recurrent UTIs due to hormonal loss, we would always give them just local estrogen because systemic estrogen doesn't do it. It's too low of a dose in the traditional sense to address all the body's needs. So the local effects in the vagina continue in the vast majority. So GSM, we would give local estrogen to help restore the balance of the vagina and help bring back elasticity. And that's always a first line therapy for that. Um, so estrogen in the vagina is local administration only. It doesn't help with hormonal symptoms. It doesn't help with any of the benefits uh, of having estrogen back in circulation, but at least it's treating locally. Right. And, um, but what about the patient that can't have local estrogen or doesn't want local estrogen because of their breast cancer history mm-hmm. um, or that they don't respond? Because there's actually um, there's actually a reason for patients not to respond for estrogen. Because without sufficient estrogen circulation, the body stops producing receptors, the protein that caught that that the, that the estrogen attaches to. So in which case, that's called receptor downregulation. That you can give all the estrogen you want, and they don't respond. Wow, that's actually so, really interesting as well. Yeah. So then, what do you do for these patients? For years, the answer would go would default back to, well, I guess abstain or find other means. Mm. So, or try, try uh, coconut oil or salves, you know, and basically it, it's, in my mind, it, it, it wasn't quite dismissive in intent um, because that's all they had. Yeah. But nowadays it's dismissive that they don't, that if they're not listening or even acknowledging that there are therapies out there for this, that's where laser therapies came in, came into mm-hmm. play. Yeah. Um, so about, I don't know, about eight or nine years ago, I was approached to be part of uh, a, uh, the large study here in the United States for one of the lasers uh, in the vagina for treating atrophy. And my initial response, and I will admit, uh, my <laughs> being short-sighted, but I thought, why would you be treating something that's hormonal with a laser? Right. Like this makes zero sense to me. And and I'll tell you why, because I was thinking like a gynecologist. Now that sounds awful, but what we, we gynecologists, we always treated the vagina as, as an organ and it's a hormonally responsive organ. And if it's a hormonal issue, then we should be treating it with hormonally. Um, however, like I said, some patients can't have hormones. Some patients don't respond to hormones. So then we would always default to just, well, I guess that's it. That's all you have for you. Right. Um, but also wouldn't have... the laser therapies work, even if someone responded to hormones, like, don't they also just or for some people, can't they be really beneficial regardless? Yes, the hormones are, it's, the lasers have changed, changed the way we approach vaginal health. Yeah. So, so the, the studies regarding, um, regarding laser therapies in, uh, in, uh, in the breast cancer patient, this was in the beginning, was really thought to just help those patients that didn't need, didn't need hormones and the breast cancer survivor. And so we can bring them back their sexual health or vaginal health. With, uh, without their concerns. 
Well, that's evolved since then because right. what, what are we doing to the skin? We're, what's the, the vaginal, we started thinking of the vagina as skin instead of just an organ. Now we can treat it just like a dermatologist treats skin. So we learned a lot from them. And when you injure the skin in a controlled way, you don't get old skin, you get new skin. You get new skin with all of its properties, all of its elasticity, all of its receptor status, all of its collagen um, ratios, proper collagen ratios to allow for for tolerance and um, resilience and elasticity. Mm -hmm. So that changed the way we now use vaginal lasers. So the vaginal lasers that are available now have evolved. And we have the we have different areas of treatment, different patient populations to treat in different conditions that we use different lasers for. Now, lasers are not uh, inexpensive. So most practices don't have but one if they have one at all. Now, we've been fortunate because of uh, the ability to do research and to, like I said, um, explore um, better ways of treating our patients. We have several lasers in our practice and we designate which one would be most appropriate for the patient based on their specific characteristics and needs. Um, um, you know, we can, you know, we've, uh, I guess we can talk about uh, brands here. Yeah. Um, so, so the Mona Lisa laser was the very first laser that came to market here in the United States, but it's by far the only laser and it's not necessarily the most robust laser. It mm-hmm. is an ideal laser for some patients. Um, whereas the, you know, the, the more recent evolution of lasers is a hybrid fractional laser called the Diva. Now, it's a diva dye because it's it's two different lasers. That is very tunable, uh, tunable to the patient, tunable to the condition. And there are so many different protocols you can use and create four different conditions that that is by far my most versatile tool. Mm-hmm. And from patients who have loss of sensitivity because of what the vaginal walls are thinning to scarring because of birth changes, like delivery changes, or due to atrophy, or just for incontinence, stress urinary incontinence, or UTIs, we have different protocols for all those patients using the Diva laser that we can truly reach a wider um, population and treat them all in different ways. I'm curious how the lasers work for bladder issues. Mm-hmm. So um, I think we talked about the UTI part. Mm-hmm. Um, with regard to um, the um, incontinence, for example, stress urinary incontinence um, has been you know, the, um, uh, you know, the urogynecologist's bread and butter condition to treat. And we have lots of options from, you know, pessaries to bulking agents and incontinence procedures aside from, you know, con- uh, conservative efforts. Um, but years ago, we started treating the urethra specifically with different energy sources, microwave energy, radio frequency energy, laser energy. And we all did them through the urethra. And results were quite variable because it was hard to get patients to come back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was, um, uh, even in research conditions, some studies would be 80 something percent, other studies would be 40%, and then some would show complications. So we, so we sort of fell by the wayside. We stopped treating the urethra with thinking, well, I guess we, there's nowhere to go with this. But you mean come back but, because it was uncomfortable, I assume, or painful? Because it, because it was uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. And because we're treating the urethra as an extremely sensitive yeah. organ, it's by far the most sensitive organ and the most erogenous organ. Yeah, that's why it's so easily to stimulate during intercourse. But the um, uh, the interesting thing is, as laser therapy started being developed for the vagina for a different reason, for GSM, for vaginal laxity, we started finding a secondary benefit to it that patients stopped leaking. Mm. And and it's because we were thinking in the wrong way. Um, we were thinking about treating the urethra previously. That's why we couldn't get very far. But when we treat transvaginally and the vagina and the urethra share a wall and it's a thin wall. Oh. And that wall is loaded with connective tissue, blood supply, nerve endings that all support the urethra. And when we started treating the urethra, patients started to stop leaking. And we, were, we found that as a secondary benefit to the real reason we were, for the original reason we we're using the laser. You mean so when you started treating the vagina? We started treating the vagina. Right, right, right. Which is, so now what we've done is we've created specific protocols just for patients who have urethral problems. 
That's crazy. And it's really fascinating. Mm-hmm. It, you know, what's even crazier is that um, we've been, you know, as a surgeon, I've always believed that there's nothing better than a major sling. And in part, that is true because it's a one and done. Like a major sling is a surgical procedure for stress incontinence. Um, on average, 90% cure rates. And, um, you know, it is surgical, so there's some complications that are possible, but they're low. They're generally 1%. Um, and it's lifelong, you know, you know, barring, you know, provided all things remain equal. However, um, when we get close to 80% dry rates with a laser that has no downtime and no risk, it's almost hard to recommend just an incontinence procedure to my patients now. Mm-hmm. So when we did our study, we did a trial, I think it's been almost two years now, um, that we finished our one-year follow-up on our patients. And our patients that we, that we included, and this is a multi-center trial, we presented this at several conferences, that we treated patients with a variety of different types of stressing of, of urinary incontinence um, with, uh, with a laser. And we found 80% cure rates um, across the board at all centers. And, um, and then even patients that I expected to not do well because their severity was so great, they did well. Wow. So it was really surprising. That's but so I always cool. assumed that I always made the assumption that patients would opt to say, well, if this is working this way and I don't have to come back once a year anymore, why don't I just do, do the surgery? I would assume that they would naturally gravitate towards something more permanent. And they surprised, have surprised me by saying, well, why would I do that? This is no, a no-brainer. I don't mind coming back once a year just for a maintenance treatment. And for those patients, basically, after they complete their initial series, they come back once a year just for a basic a maintenance treatment of their laser without ever having to go under under anesthesia or scalpel. Yeah. I also feel like, I mean, I, I don't have ex- like personal experience in this, but I feel like if I was a patient, I feel like surgery to that area if you don't need it obviously there's reasons why like it can be very helpful but like if there was an alternative such as a laser where you didn't need like surgery in that area of your body it is a no-brainer yeah it really is for that patient who's surgery averse um that uh which is perfectly fine that's why we have options and i pride myself in our practice in that we have options for our patients yeah no because not everybody wants surgery uh But we also do, we also do have lots of patients who um, would much rather have surgery because they're just too busy to be thinking about this forever. (laughs) They just want to have it done. Um, um, So yeah, so the laser therapies have come a long way. And then we've gone to take it even further. Here's overlap conditions that lead to vaginal symptoms like painful intercourse that have nothing to do with atrophy or childbirth related changes, conditions called lichen sclerosis. Mm Um, lichen sclerosis is a vulvar dystrophy or a skin condition that's very predominantly located in the vulva, predominantly in women. Um, and, um, and it happens where, uh, meaning some men can have it on their penis, some women can have it on their breasts, but the vast majority, it is on the vulva. It's on the outside of the vagina. And what it does is causes the skin to um, become hyperkeratotic, meaning the, the top coating of our skin becomes so thick with this chronic inflammation that it itches. Mm-hmm. And that itching is incessant, and patients can't do anything because all they want to do is scratch all day long. Um, and that condition has a, does have a detrimental side to it. Aside from the, the, you know, the uh, discomfort, has a 10% risk of conversion to squamous cell carcinoma. Oh, wow. So once you see that once, You'll never want to have a patient go through that again, and because uh, that's a whole other problem. So, um, uh, so you mean so essentially that, cancer on the skin of the vagina, of the vulva, right? Of the vulva, yeah. Right. So that's for those bad. patients that have lichen sclerosis, which is diagnosed by you can you can make assumptions based on certain characteristics of the, of the physical findings, but confirmatory with a biopsy um, will tell you a diagnosis. And what we do with that. With lichen sclerosis, um, the mainstay has been always been steroids, and steroids have a finite point to you can do that. Eventually, patients get tired of using it all the time because it thins the skin so much that now it's even uncomfortable to wear clothes. So um, patients that come to see us after years of being on steroids, we offer them a different option using laser therapies. Again, uh, it, it's thinking outside of the box and realizing that skin is still skin. Why can't we treat this like skin? And um, um, and we use a, a um, laser therapy that we combine with PRP to 
restore the vulvar health. Basically, remember I mentioned you do away with the old, you get new. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For so lichen sclerosis is believed to be an autoimmune disorder where the skin attacks its own skin and just in a very specific area, kind of like um, a bit of LIGO, where you lose melanocytes in certain areas of your body, mm-hmm. right? So here, it just attacks the vulvar skin and it becomes and it changes. So what do we do with the lasers? We actually literally remove all that skin, not all of it. We laser it, and that laser uh, treatment induces all of it to remodel and renew. And now when we've done our study, looking at these patients at six months, we mm. repeat biopsies without any evidence of lichen sclerosis and their symptoms wow. are gone. That, that's crazy. You know, the, the lichen sclerosis is, a, is an often misdiagnosed. It's supposed to be only 2%, 0.2% of the population. It seems like it's so much more because I get a lot more of those patients, so probably biased. Mm. But nonetheless, those patients are oftentimes misdiagnosed as having atrophy and just given estrogen and their conditions worsen. And lichen sclerosis can really progress to a dangerous level. Aside from just cancer, you lose architecture of the labia and the opening of the vagina can close and it can make it nearly impossible. So when I I see patients uh, that have symptoms that could be either atrophy or atrophy, we we assume we know nothing about the patient until we've examined them Mm. and then we treat accordingly. That's incredible. Um, yeah, um, and I think that that segues into PRP. So um, PRP, uh, for those who that your listeners are are not aware of PRP, it's it's platelet-rich plasma. So platelet-rich plasma is a um, uh, is basically uh, the source of all healing for your body. So in all of our bodies, whenever we get injured, blood rushes to that area, and platelets. In our blood, in our bloodstream, aggregate. Those they, when they aggregate, I mean they clump together, and then through chemical signaling, they release their contents. They unshell, and they, those contents are called platelet-derived growth factors. Platelet-derived growth factors re, uh, recruit local stem cells to the area to remodel. That's how we grow new skin. That's how we grow new bone. That's how we grow and heal. Otherwise, we would just injure and be done right? Like a toy would. Once mm-hmm. it's broken, it's broken. Yeah. <laughs> we constantly remodel. And um, so someone very wise years ago um, said, you know, we can harvest this. This is very easy to do. Let's just harvest it and put it somewhere where we want it to heal. That is an injury. And what they, what we do is we extract someone's blood. We just basically a blood draw and we put it in special separators in this, in the centrifuge that separates out the platelet rich component. So t- basically we're taking the, the, all of your healing properties, separate out from your blood, and then we put it in areas where we want to heal things. So there's close to, there's well over 7,000, probably close to 8,000 papers on PRP in sports medicine, orthopedics, um, wound care, maxillofacial surgery, and it's led into aesthetics. We use it for urologic and um, uh, and uh, sexual dysfunction. Um, in men, they use it for erectile dysfunction and Peyronie's disease. Um, uh, it's fascinating. You can grow hair with this. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, yeah. I mean, I've heard of it. Picture, in a, it's a little too late. Yeah, I've heard of it in a lot of those regards. But but when I saw that this is something that you do for sexual health, I had I've hardly heard of it in that regard. Yeah. So um, there's a, a gentleman in Alabama, uh, Charles Reynolds, um, who founded the Cellular Medicine Association. He, um, he discovered that if you were to take PRP and inject it into, um, into erogenous zones, like the clitoris, the G-spot, the urethra, um, lichen sclerosis into those tissues, or um, in men for Peyronie's disorder and erectile function, things change. And they change um, in uh, in miraculous ways because mm-hmm. basically these are areas that aren't injured, and you're injecting something that's going to cause remodeling. And what it does is recruits stem cells back to the area, neurogenesis restores, blood supply restores, um, and um, depending on the area of the body, may require more than one treatment mm-hmm. uh, with really fantastic results without medicines without um, surgery without you know these are really meant for non-surgical therapies as non-surgical uh, conditions for the most part yeah 
Um, so with the way we use it, we use the, um, for patients who have intractable vulvar pain, um, for um, lichen sclerosis, we inject it into that tissue. For, um, uh, for orgasmic dysfunction, we call it the O-shot, where we inject PRP into both the clitoris and into the G-spot. Mm -hmm. And um, to restore both clitoral and, and vaginal, uh, vaginal orgasms. Um, and then, um, uh, and of course, uh, there's in, you know, in the aesthetic world, you may have heard of vampire treatments, vampire facials, mm -hmm. vampire facelifts. Those are based on the same concept. Yeah. It's basically injuring the skin after a laser treatment and putting PRP. So we do that quite often in the vagina. We, after laser treatment, we put PRP or after lichen sclerosis laser, we put PRP and we help restore and, and improve the, the healing process. Wow. That's wild. <laughs> Very cool. So stuff. cool, though. I mean, yeah. amazing. Like, more doctors need to do this. And we try. Uh, we try to help. Um, you know, because we, you know, we're just a practice here in Moscatas, and we do have patients come from far. And we've um, we do have hold preceptorships, and we teach doctors in other states that come and spend a um, uh, uh, you know, do some time in our office, mm -hmm. they shadow me, they learn from, um, you know, the conditions, how to interview patients and how to, how to treat patients. Um, but it's still, there's so much left to do. There's so many areas of this country that just don't have, um, people who offer these therapies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's crazy. I mean, even I'm in New York and there are a lot of amazing doctors here, but if someone came to me with any of these issues in New York and was like, Oh, do you know of a good doctor? I would, I wouldn't know. I'm sure there there must be a doctor in New York that does this, but it's just crazy that there is not a lot of it. Right, and how do you find them? Uh, um, yeah, that's a good I, question. Yeah, I bet I bet a lot of. Do you get a lot of um, uh, listeners that reach out to you to ask for, you know, on occasion? How do you find somebody? Yeah, on occasion, not not every day, but many times I have. I bet I bet yeah. you've interviewed some really impressive people that I've seen in your lineup. Thank you. Um, so. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's great to have access to those people. Yeah, no, it yeah, it definitely is, and I learned from it too because people will email me with different conditions and, and share the practitioners that they went to that really helped them, and and then they're like, oh, I just want to tell you about this person might be a good guest, might be helpful for you, like interesting for your community. So it it does go both ways, which is also really cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, I do want to say yeah. that. Um, uh, that I focused on the unique therapies that we have. Mm -hmm. There's other things that we have, but, but it, um, at always, we've always taken into account um, conservative efforts that I, just in the essence of time I didn't get into, yeah. that basically most patients by the time they come to see me have already tried. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's why I didn't focus so much on them. It's, so in case your listeners are wondering, how come I didn't talk about those things? Yeah, no, no, um, no, that's helpful. I appreciate yeah. it. But what you shared is is incredible. And I'm just grateful to have you had you share all this information today. Yeah, no, thank you for for um, for the opportunity to to help educate and, and share um, how uh, women can can actually find solutions mm -hmm. out there. Yeah, they don't have to live in vain with these things. No, no, not at all. And I think the goal is that more and more practitioners over time will learn how to do these things, and they won't become as rare it won't become as rare to find you know such a unique doctor that really has such an expertise in these areas because as you said a lot of women think that these conditions are so rare and they're just one in a million but like i think you said it perfectly it's not it's not normal it's common like it's very very common and there are answers but it just needs to be more widespread like who utilizes these answers yeah i think it starts um it also is uh, extremely important that we help in lifting the taboo yeah uh, lifting the stigma Definitely. associated with these things especially in women's sexual health there's still a stigma though it's changing and there's there's more voices out there and there's greater reach through internet and podcasts and the great work that you do um yeah, lifting the stigma for these things is half the battle because mm -hmm. so many women live in darkness because they're afraid to talk about it. Yeah. Um, you know, um, and and because um, 
this I, I can just go on and on how there's so many barriers that some are uh, are um, imposed by society others I, are because of lack of uh, access to these providers or for you know knowledge from the providers themselves mm-hmm. um, but there's barriers all across uh, all across the board um, but if we can start talking about it continue the conversation um, uh, th- then it'll help because every voice matters yeah. every person who who voices these concerns or at least shares their experience in one way or another, whether it's in a blog or it's in a, um, in a review for their provider that they saw or in, or just in word of mouth. And it's not easy. These are not easy topics to talk about at a dinner table. These are usually among close friends or hearing or catching somebody talking about these conditions and then sharing with them that, you know what I've, I've heard that there's things that you can be, that can be done about these things. Mm-hmm. And, and give them uh, places to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and just as a, and, and this is not a plug for myself, uh, truly, because I help, I help patients and I help providers all across the country. And um, um, what I, what I, my dream is to, is for this to be open conversation so that if patients needed to find help, mm-hmm. all they have to do is go somewhere and, yeah. and go to a directory of some sorts and find it. And um, so for the time being, there's information on my website at swanmd.com um but then of course if there's ever interest in finding somebody near them and it's too hard for them to come to see me i'm happy to help them find somebody as close as possible to them mm-hmm. uh, because it's the, the, the most important thing is that there's that patients don't continue to live with um with these uh, concerns without it being addressed yeah and uh, and we do that all the time yeah Amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming on again to the Beehive. I appreciate it. This was so interesting. I mean, I was sitting here just learning from everything you were saying. Um, yeah, it was. I learned a lot, and I am sure that everyone listening is going to find this really interesting. So, thank you again, and I think we'll we'll have to have you back for a third time sometime soon. Would love that. Thank you so much, Hannah. Yeah.